welcome to Off The Beaten Track. This is the follow-up to our walk around Taunton. Ross is here with me as always. How are you, Ross? Let me stop you there, Ross. Breaking news. Coming through the teleprinter now. In the last episode of Off The Beaten Track, we reported that in 1888, Vincent van Gogh cut off part of his left ear, the lobe, and then handed it to a lady of the night. New evidence has come to light that proves he did in fact cut off his entire ear and gave it to a brothel maid as opposed to a prostitute. Where did that uh, information come from, by the way? I was watching a Jeremy Paxman documentary last week, and that's, that's the new information that he, he and his researcher, his researcher, uncovered. Excellent. Right, now, before we get started properly, I should say, in this episode, we're going to try and keep our conversation centred around the history keep on the righteous path of historical chit-chat because in the last episode we talked about virtually everything but. Uh, yes, and at the end of this episode we'll be rating each other's ability to stay on point, on message. Will we? Yes. Okay. So listen to the end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, now when we were in Taunton we spent a lot of time discussing the Monmouth Rebellion. In fact, we were talking with Tom in the Museum of Somerset about that very subject. The Bloody Assizes and uh, Judge Jeffreys. We mentioned that Judge George Jeffreys, the hanging judge, did well after the Assizes, becoming Lord Chancellor at the age of only 40. But let me tell you the end of that particular story. After the Glorious Revolution in 1688, when James II fled the country, Jeffreys stayed in London. When William III's troops approached the city, he tried to flee, but he was captured in a pub, which is now the town of Ramsgate pub in Wapping. Uh, he was reportedly disguised as a sailor, but recognised by a surviving judicial victim, despite the fact that he had shaven off his eyebrows. He shaved off his eyebrows? As a disguise, yeah. What I find amazing about that is he must have had some serious eyebrows for him to feel mm. the need to shave them off to remain incognito. They must have been whoppers, like a pair of caterpillars. Oh, yeah. Oh, Dennis Healy's. <laughs> he was then incarcerated in the Tower of London and died less than half a year later in the Tower. That tale has inspired us to look up some more people throughout history who have disguised themselves a little more successfully. The Boston Tea Party. The political protest where Massachusetts colonists destroyed an entire shipment of tea by throwing it into Boston Harbour. Some of the demonstrators disguised themselves as Native Americans and donned Mohawk costumes before boarding the ships. Ah, oh, I didn't know that. Why did, why did they disguise themselves? The disguises were intended to hide their identity, but symbolically showed their allegiance to America rather than Great Britain. Grand Britannia. I see. <laughs> nice bit of French there. I thought of another. Yeah. The Trojan horse. Of course, yes. When the Greeks sneakily entered the city of Troy by hiding in a wooden horse. Yeah. On that note... Probably the most famous example, I, I should think. Of disguises? Yeah, historical disguises. Mm -hmm. It differs somewhat because it's a lot of people disguised as one thing. A bit like a pantomime horse. Is that where the pantomime horse comes from? Of course, the ancient Greeks, inventors of the theatre, tragedy, comedy, inventors also the pantomime horse. Research paper, please. <laughs> Odysseus, you're up front. Minelaus, you're at the back again. <laughs> you know, that, that sounds like a uh, Heinrich Schliemann interpretation of Greek culture. There we are. <laughs> but on that note, yeah. classics, in the Odyssey, Odysseus and his men disguise themselves as sheep to escape the Cyclops. Oh, yes, to get out, get out of his cave, and they in his cave. Mm -hmm. The last pair on the list are Mary Reed and Anne Bonny, who were pirates. The only two women who were ever convicted of piracy during the golden age of piracy in the early 18th century, they both disguised themselves as men during their careers. Ah. Now for this section, there's a new member of the team helping us, Yamaha PSR 190. Please say hello. 
Welcome to Jack and Ori. So let's set the scene. We're in the Caribbean. Nassau, to be precise, 1788. Mary Reed and Anne Bonny have just landed. There's some music around the quayside. What might that have sounded like? Oh, Anne, it's hot here, isn't it? Yes, Mary, there's lots of palm trees and rats. And look, there's a man selling coconuts over there. I think I'll buy one. Thank you. After a mild bout of dysentery and a couple of days in bed, Mary and Anne decide to venture out at night. Amazingly, they find a techno club in the middle of 18th century Nassau. What might that have sounded like? Wow, I'm really enjoying myself, Mary, but I'm going to go home in a bit because I'm married. Yes, Anne, that's a sensible thing to do. I'm still feeling a little unwell from the jet ski ride earlier. Hang on, Mary. Who's that dashing rake strutting on the dance floor? Oh, Anne, that's Calico Jack Rackham. Oh. Anne and Jack hit it off instantly and parted the night away. Mary suddenly became tired of the music and left in search of a kebab and the night bus. Anne, Mary and Jack later set sail, partying and plundering their way around the Caribbean. Hey Jack, did you sack that Spanish treasure galleon? Yes Mary, and we killed everyone on board. It was great fun. <laughs> oh Jack, you are a cad. But what's that on the horizon? It's the Royal Navy, and they look absolutely furious. All three were caught together off the coast of Jamaica in 1720. Anne and Mary were pregnant, so avoided the death penalty, but Jack was hanged and gibbeted. So ends this tale of intrigue, infidelity and anachronisms. Thanks, Yamaha. There he goes. He was a nice chap, wasn't he? Uh, yes, lovely fella. A little bit too much to say for himself, though. Can show him up. Uh, also, while we were in Taunton, I was talking about some of my childhood memories. Deacon Trevor being one of them, the man with the migrating wig. <laughs> and uh, that got us thinking about the history of wigs. Did you know they were invented by the ancient Egyptians, Phil? Perhaps, oh. perhaps unsurprisingly. I knew the Egyptians were fond of a wig, but I didn't know they were the inventors. Wigs became increasingly popular in the 18th century, especially amongst the rich. They were first worn at the French court and they later became fashionable in England. It's all down to King Louis XIV. Is that King Louis from the Jungle Book? No. <laughs> Although it's likely that King Louis had a wig made out of the hair of an orangutan, but that's probably... Sorry, what are we saying? King Louis XIV? The, the Ginger King. The Sun King and the Ginger <laughs> King. French King Louis XIV's hair started to thin when he was 35 in the year, this is specific, 1675. That's when his hair began to that's thin. That's that exact We've date. We've got that written down. That, that year. Louis employed over 40 wig makers and thought it so vital to his reputation that he never let anyone apart from his barber see him without a wig. His courtiers started wearing wigs as a compliment. In later life, he wore an enormous wig. His style was copied in French society, so looking old became in. It was du rigueur, du jour. That means fashionable and cool. I've got a story here about the Caroline of Ansbach. 
okay. which is a which is a great tale. It, it does at some point involve a wig. Who's so, Caroline of Ansbach was? She was the Queen of England and wife of King George II. In 1737, she was suffering from an intestinal hernia. Walter Raleigh's famed cordial, which I'll come back to later, was administered, but to no effect. As her condition worsened, they decided to operate on the Queen. Uh, and you know what that means in the 18th century. Oh, yes. Zero anaesthetic. Crikey. During the uh, ill-fated operation, the assistant to the surgeon accidentally set his wig on fire with a candle, <laughs> to which the Queen asked the surgeon to stop for a while because she was laughing so much. Good, a, old, good old Carolina man's back. What I like a, her. What a trooper. Yeah. Yes, uh, so Walter Raleigh's famed cordial. Okay. Uh, which is, I'm um, reading here, aquavitae and strawberries. That's vodka, isn't it, basically? <laughs> yeah, strawberry vodka. Strawberry vodka. Skittles vodka, that sounds like. <laughs> was administered and amazingly it did nothing other famous wig wearers yeah have you got a few more Paul Daniels <laughs> less historical but uh... Sean Connery yes you've told me before that he he wore a uh, specially crafted waterproof toupee for the filming of Thunderball true there's a lot of underwater scenes in, the, in that film there is that's the speculation I'm not yeah. I think he wore a wig throughout his entire Bond career Bond career yeah. wow I didn't know that I think they call it a hairpiece rather than a wig the wig's the full show, whereas the hairpiece is just either at the front or the back. What about this, though? Sean's hairpiece in the hunt for Red October. $20,000 it cost. $20,000? That's on a par with Louis XIV, I think. Hairpieces and wigs remain in the realm of the rich. The Hollywood elite. Julia Roberts, on the set of Hook, the Peter Pan, modern Peter Pan remake, yeah. she played Tinkerbell, which required her to be barefoot, and she had someone to clean her feet on set. I read that once. Wow. I don't know how true that is, but... There we go. A few people... Well, that didn't involve a wig, but all of the other stories in that segment did include wig wearers to some extent. But I feel we're veering off the tracks. Again, we're not talking about history. In that case, let me say this. Famous donkeys. <laughs> the donkey that worked the pulley during the construction of oh. St. Mary Magdalene Church... I see. ...was hoisted to the top of the bell tower after the church was finished so he could admire his work. Eeyore? Eeyore? From the Winnie the Pooh tales. Donkey from Shrek. That's a good one, yeah. The great, the great Eddie Murphy. Did you know on the set of Shrek, Donkey insisted that someone cleaned his hooves every day and, was, <laughs> and he was reshod, reshod with abandon. <laughs> Who was Eddie Murphy's on-site farrier? Is that what we're trying, to, <laughs> we're trying to find out? Bottom from A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes. Nick Bottom. You know, his name's Nick Bottom. Nick Bottom. Yeah, which is, that's what happens if you sit in a knife, isn't it? <laughs> It, that's slightly different because he gets his head turned into that of a donkey by Puck. So he's not quite a donkey. No, he's sort of just head. Seaside donkeys. Yeah, well, they're not, they're not famous, are they? They're not celebrities. They're not individually famous, but as a collective. Right. It's a rolling squad. Ah, oh, I've, I've got another one. Uh, the, the donkey that carried Mary to the stable. That's a famous donkey. That's a, that's a world, world, famous. world famous donkey. A I famous ass. Is Christianity the biggest religion in the world? I think it is. Yes. I think it is too. Yeah. Good. Cleared that one up. Right. We, <laughs> we, uh... <laughs> While we were walking through the courtyard of Taunton Castle, we asked ourselves whether it was a piazza or a plaza. What's the answer? Well, 
The word piazza and plaza have the same Greek origin. Okay. Piazza is the Italian adaptation and plaza the Spanish one. Since we're talking about the piazza or plaza, we were standing uh, there outside the Casa Hotel and inspired by the successes of Gary Rhodes and Phil Vickery at the Casa Hotel, we've looked up some culinary events from history that have been a little less successful. And I'll start you off with King Alfred the Great burning the cakes. A classic. The story goes, King Alfred, the Saxon king of Wessex in the late 9th century, in 878, he was on the run from the Vikings, and he and a small group of his men were hiding in the marshes of Somerset. Legend has it that he took refuge in the house of a peasant woman, who, unaware of who he was, asked him to look after her cakes cooking by the fire. Alfred was so distracted by the problems in his kingdom that he let the cakes burn and was roundly scolded by the peasant woman. No. Yeah. Alfred subsequently led a guerrilla resistance against the Vikings and later defeated them at the Battle of Eddington in May 878, hence Alfred the Great. So he was an excellent military tactician, not so great in the kitchen. A rubbish cook. I don't blame her. No, (laughs) we've written these notes, but the way it's written is is, as if the woman had no rights to school them. No. We let the bloody cakes burn, didn't he? Exactly. I don't blame... There's nothing worse than... You're coming home, you've come back, and there's a wonderful smell of cakes. What's that smell in the oven? Oh, this is fantastic. But hang on. Oh, that... Something smells a bit... Oh, he's letting them burn! (laughs) The thing is about the the burned smell, like burnt toast, it takes forever to to get it out the house. To disseminate, To get it out the house. But the thing is, the king doesn't mind, does he? He's (laughs) off on his horse. Exactly. He doesn't care. He's gone off, you know, surveying the area, surveying his lands. She's the one who's got to clear the smell out. Waft the smell out the door of her hovel. No mean f- <laughs> So it is... <laughs> no mean feet when you've only got windows that are two inches wide. <laughs> dark age windows. That brings us neatly on to our next conversation topic. Famous windows of the dark ages. <laughs> no, yes, you're quite right. I think I very much sympathise with the peasant woman. Culinary mishaps. Yep. King Henry I. Oh, Yes. According to the chronicler Henry of Huntington, King Henry died in 1135 after eating too many lampreys. Apparently they're an eel-like fish. Uh, Whilst on a hunting trip in France. When on the trip, he fell ill and ate the lampreys against his physician's advice. And his condition worsened over the course of a week, culminating in his death. He was 66 or 67. I once had a very bad food poisoning off some scampi, so I can sympathise with I also got ill after eating too many whelks. (laughs) <laughs> yes. The only caveat to that story is that I was also drinking quite a lot of Stella as oh, well. Right. Yes, of course. It was the Welks in between points 11 and 12 that did it. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. Was the, yeah, it was the Welks. Uh, I've just thought of another one. Culinary mishaps. The nursery rhyme, sing a song of sixpence. A pocket full of rye. Four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. But they all came out, didn't they? It Probably Alfred again. This time he's thought, right, burn them the first time. This time we're going to turn it down to gas mark four. Just make sure we're not going to burn them. Comes out the oven, still alive. Although you've got to question the mentality of someone who's prepared a pie with live blackbirds in. I've got one here, which is a famous event, Phil, called the London Beer Flood. Ever this, heard of that? Well, I haven't heard of this, <laughs> but this sounds incredible. Yeah. Well, it's, it's tragic. Well, it can be tragic it's, and incredible. Uh, the London Beer Flood happened on the 17th of October, 1814, at the Moo & Company Brewery on Tottenham Court Road. Several huge vats of beer ruptured in a domino effect, releasing over 1.4 million litres of beer onto the streets. The wave of beer destroyed two houses and killed eight people. 
I am incredible 1.4 million litres of beer. beer all released at the same time. The tragic leap, four mourners were killed at a wake when the tidal wave of beer smashed through the wall. I mean, what a, t- what a way to go. Tr- tragically ironic. Yes, on, a, exactly, on, a, on a wake, yeah. you get killed... By beer. By beer. Yeah. Is that... Are. That's not that bad a way to go, though, is it? Drowning in beer? No, I suppose not, no. There are uh, apparently apocryphal stories that okay. people were running through the streets afterwards scooping up the beer and getting drunk. Oh. But apparently not true. Made up Always after, get it. The beer looters. Did you say that was on Tottenham Court Road? Yes. Ah, that reminds me of Tottenham Football Club. Right. For another... For another... <laughs> I know what you're going to say, and this has no place in a list of historical culinary mishaps. But... Well, it, I think in time it will. <laughs> okay. Tottenham and their food poisoning debacle. In their final game of the 05-06 season, Tottenham just needed to match Arsenal's results to secure their first ever appearance in the Champions League European competition. But along came a dodgy lasagna the night before and wiped out a good few members of their squad. Or killed them. (laughs) They they ended up with... I think they got tummy troubles rather than out-and-out death. A lot of their squad were... uh, Rendered incapacitated. Unable to play. Unable to play, in, yeah. In the following day's fixture. Abound yeah. by conspiracy theories. Wenger poisoned the lasagna. Mm. He, put, he put some lampreys in there. Well, there we are. We've talked about historical disguises, wigs, famous donkeys, Piazza Plaza, and uh, historical culinary mishaps. Oh, we haven't actually rated ourselves. At the top, oh, no. At the top of the episode, we said we're going to rate how closely we stuck to talking about history. Uh-huh. And... What scale have you used, Phil? I've used the I've used the Scoville scale. Uh, okay. Of of uh, chili, chili, the chili heat. Yeah, that's the yeah. scale I've used. Well, in that case, you've registered mild bell pepper. <laughs> I'd say. And in fact, if we're talking about chilies, I'll go for the uh, the Beaufort wind scale. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rate you as a light breeze in that case. <laughs> Well, there we go. I think it's about time to wrap this up. Once again, we've left the shipping lane of history and are now dangerously close to being dashed on the rocks of irrelevance. Again. And don't forget to look us up on social media, Facebook and Twitter, using our handle at GWSpod. We're also on iTunes. Yes, and we'll be back shortly with some specials we recorded during Bristol Open Doors Day in September. So watch this space. And we'll see you next time on Off The Beaten Track. Goodbye. Goodbye.